Sir, welcome. If it's your first time to Eretz Yisrael, welcome to the Simcha of Yushalayim and the Simcha of Hashanah Rabbah. And of course, every Yom Tov is an experience of Simcha. V'asayinu Hashem Olkeinu Esbechas Moadecha, Samcheinu Bevinyano, Hareinu Besikuno. But inasmuch as Sikhas isn't really tagged to any one particular event or geography, it isn't weighted down with Zman Cheruseinu or Zman Matan Taraseinu. It's liberated to be completely dedicated to Simcha. And the end really accelerates. These last three days are saturated. Every day is a different theme, a different idea. Tomorrow's Hashanah Rabbah, and the next day is Simchas Torah. And in Israel, we've got to juggle Simchas Torah and Shemini Atzeres jointly. So a lot happening over the next three days. And without question, Simchas Torah is an eruption of joy and celebration. But is Simchas Torah permissible? Well, that's a provocative question. Of course, it's permissible, but it's permissible and even warranted and, and endorsed to dance with the Torah and celebrate the cycle of the Torah. What about when we study Torah? Should Simcha be the prominent emotion, the attitude, the modality? Where should we be? Where should our mind space be when we study Torah? So of course that takes us a few steps back. What's the role in joy in general in life, in general in religion, before we telescope Torah? How important should joy be and, and happiness and of course, in the modern world, psychology has stressed happiness, alleviated any stressors or tension. Or, and in addition, within the Jewish world, Hasidus placed a great emphasis on Simcha, because the Hasidus is not just an ideological movement, it's also a historical movement, and it emerges 1,700 years into a very long gallus that had become very protracted, very onerous, 17th, 18th century, very difficult for the Jews of Central Europe. So Hasidus has a message about living in that tunnel, that it may seem dark and it may seem long and it may seem unending, but HaKadosh Baruch was right around the corner in some cosmic world that you can't see. Even though the political world may be a little bit dark and bleak, there's a cosmic calculus that's a little bit larger than life and can't be tracked with human eye, and, and that's cause for consolation and cause for redemptive hope. So certainly in 2019, most of us would say, well, of course, joy is fundamental to self-esteem, to human welfare, to happiness of being, to, to success in life. But interestingly enough, the Rambam doesn't, doesn't suggest an accentuated form of joy. Again, I apologize for the sources, but the Rambam, in the beginning of Hilchos Deos, it's a very interesting theory called the golden mean. Middle road, middle path. A lot of people mistake that, but... Well, I'm a little bit religious, I'm not that religious, I keep some mitzvahs, not, I'm a Rambam man. <laughs> I keep some of the mitzvahs. I don't want to be too extreme. I don't want to be fanatical. Those fanatics, those mikvah, mikvah dippers. I'm not a mikvah dipper. I'm a, I'm a Rambam man. I keep half the mitzvahs. So I come to Shul 1015 because I want to be middle of the road. The Rambam was referring to personality calibration, not religion, not ritual, not ceremony. How do you calibrate yourself? Should you spend all your money? Should you be very frugal? Should you be talkative or should you be quiet and introverted? Should you character, character calibration? And one of the issues he suggests calibrating is, should you be full of schok and happiness and joy and mirth? Or should you be more serious and, and not somber, but focused? And, and, and I'll just read the language. Should you be mehulal v'sochek? Or should you be etzef, sad even, v'onin? And even a bit mournful, I would say maybe melancholy, if not mournful, wistful, longing, the recognition of the realities of life, not just the joy of life, which we read about this morning. And the Rambam suggests that they be calibrated. He doesn't, there are only two traits which the Rambam endorses extremism towards. One is anger and one is humility. You should have absolutely no anger and absolutely no arrogance. 
Every other trait should be calibrated right along that golden mean. So interestingly enough, the Rambam does not stress unabated, uncompromised, or unqualified simcha. Of course, to understand the Rambam, it's probably important to distinguish between two types of simcha. And each form of simcha has a respective word in our lexicon, in Tanakh, in Chazal, in the Rambam. There's a difference between what the Rambam refers to, he talks about tzchok, shihei muhulo v'sochek, you shouldn't be tzchok-oriented to an extreme, and the word simcha. I probably define the distinction as follows. Tzchok is probably light, humorous, cheery, mirthful, jovial, and that's an important trait. Sometimes people are too heavy. They're too dark. They walk into the room, they suck out all the oxygen. It's good to have a good sense of humor. It's good to smile. It's good to create mirth, happiness, lightness of being. Not to be weighed down. We all have our troubles in life, intentions, and sometimes we need people and experiences to help us escape them, even temporarily. So lightheadedness, not frivolity in the sense of callous rose, of, of uncontrolled language or inebriated behavior or inappropriate behavior towards other people, but lightness, easygoing, calm. That's scope. And that trait, the Rambam feels, has to be regulated. You should be light, humorous, relax, relaxing other people's tension, but not too extreme. On the other hand, you should be serious of purpose, serious-minded, focused, challenging. As opposed to simcha, and it's, I don't want to use the word happiness tonight, because that's too generic and too general, and it'll probably be, it, it would dilute the sheer. I would describe simcha not as mirth and cheer, but as an inner satisfaction inner contentment, gratification, serenity, tranquility, calmness of being, alignment. These are the words I think mature people would think about to describe simple. Do you feel aligned? Do you feel gratified? Do you feel internally content? And whereas the Rambam encourages us to calibrate schok and not to be too jovial, but not to be too serious, it would appear that simcha is an unqualified trait. To appreciate the difference between simcha and schok, again, the absence of sources all arrive in Hashem, but there's an interesting section in the beginning of Shmuel Beis in which David HaMelech relocates the Aaron twice. There are two attempts to relocate the Aaron. At one point, it's in a house of Aminadav, and he relocates it, and there's mass celebrations and dancing, but unfortunately, one of the carriers of the Aaron is killed by a Kaddish Baruch, whose name is Uzzah. And in that context, I'll just read the key words for you. This is in Shmuel Beis, Perak Vav, David v'chol beis Yisrael mesachakim l'fnei Hashem. You hear the language mesachakim? They're dancing, the spirit, there's a lot of lightheadedness. And in part, that lack of gravitas is what leads to this tragic death of one of the Aaron's. Very similar to Nadav and Avihu. Great day, landmark moment, keystone event, and all of a sudden terrible tragedy to one of the participants in the event. And then a few months later, the Aaron is now in the home of a, a person called Oveid, Edom, his name is Oved, and Oved has become very wealthy because he's hosting the Aaron, and David now wants to relocate it to Ir David. It's not yet the base on Mikdash, but it's Ir David. And at that point, a very different ceremony takes place. Once burned, twice conscious. There's no schok, but the language is they ascend with the Aaron, the simcha, not schok. And some of the signals of simcha, just before we even get to Talmud Torah, is number one, there's sacrifices every couple steps, every six steps. They offer a sacrifice. I'm not sure if that sacrifice is a prayer for the next six steps or prayer for the previous six steps. Because one of the sequel theories is that. But there's sacrifices. 
and he's wearing an ephod. It's not the ephod of the Kohen Gadol because he's not a Kohen, but it's something ceremonious. It's something that's anchored. It's not just unfettered joy. It's anchored in symbolism. It's anchored in the iconography. It's anchored in something related to based on interest. They're korbanos. It's the garments of the Kohen. And there's a cold shofar replacing some of the musical instruments that dominated the previous schok. So if you're looking for a yeoman's distinction between schok and simcha, schok would be unfettered, simcha would be symbolic, simcha would evoke something larger than itself, would evoke some other realm, such as the Beis Amikdash, the Kohen Gadol, the shofar, in a different context, a little bit happier, a little bit more joyous than, let's say, the solemnity of Rosh Hashanah, but it would be evocative, not just empty. So clearly, when the Rambam encourages us to calibrate schok, he's referring to schok, lightness of being, which is important, but dangerous in the extreme. Simcha, tadarabatzach, I think. Uh, David, did you get the phone call yet? From? Okay, so these are the preliminary makaros. <laughs> this is just page one. <laughs> the others are on the way. Tadarabatzach. V'yashikoach kol Okay, so please, Akiva and Ned, if you can hand out those sheets, everyone, up them. This is just the first sheet. Those who have the first sheet, Chazal also. Ah, okay, forget it. Hold up. This is Rabbi Friedman, who just made the initial letters. So these are the actual Nagara sheets. Jason, okay. We're getting around a different story. Let's have a team of, let's divide it into Okay, so while we're waiting for the Makaros to be distributed, those who have the Makaros already, you can take a glance at source number one, where the Rambam describes the calibration of Schok. Take a look at source, we'll skip source number two. It's not about take a look at source number. Um, Take a, take a look at source number five and six. Five and six are the two stages of the Aaron's relocation. Source number five, for those who have the sheets, line number two, I bold-faced the word misachakim. They were dancing. Source number six, look at the word simcha, please, line number one, and notice the, the evocative symbols of Zvayizbach and David Chagur Eifod Ba, Betruo Vakol Shofar. Those who walked in a little bit late, don't worry, you're not late, the Makarish just arrived. And we're describing, before we address the modality of Talmud Torah, what state of mind a person should be, and what's the role of simcha in general. And even though the Rambam encourages a calibrated response to schok, it seems as if simcha should be unqualified. Chazal also sends that distinction. Source number three, the Gemara described the method of preparing for davening. How should a person prepare for davening? What mind frame? What mind space? What pre-davening activities? Should a person engage in to set the tone? So the Gemara says in Brachos, You shouldn't be sad. Source three, you shouldn't be lazy, you should be energetic. You shouldn't be lightheaded in davening. You shouldn't be engaged in mindless conversation. So the Gemara discourages schok as an entry point for davening, but encourages Eli Simcha Shol Mitzvah. So Chazal were keenly aware of the distinction between schok and simcha, the same distinction that emerges from the first failed relocation of the Aaron, which was David and his party in the Sachakim, as opposed to source number um, six, the second phrase, where they were in the Samchim. So it's safe to say that in general, simcha, in Avodah Hashem, and of course in psychological well-being, 
is something we endorse, something which is an unqualified um, benefit to human experience in general, to Avodah Hashem in particular. Of course, this is the message that HaKadosh Baruch Hu chides us with in source number four, when he announces the advent of the Telchacha and all the suffering, part of the reason we suffer, a very famous Pasek, Tachas Asher Lo Avadata, as Hashem Elokecha B'Simcha, Uvituv Levav Mirov Kol. That the Tochacha will be invited upon you for your failure to build a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu based on Simcha. Notice Simcha here is also qualified. We may get back to this. It's not just Simcha, but Simcha and Tov Levav. So can you achieve Simcha without Tov Levav? Possibly. What are those to refer to? So this ends our introduction. Those who have uh, walked in a little bit late. We, we're here tonight to discuss what role should Simcha play in the experience of Talmud Torah, not in the experience of celebrating ceremoniously the conclusion of the Torah. When a person sits and studies Torah, what role should Simcha play? There are four potential problems and challenges to Simcha during the experience of Talmud Torah. Number one, Torah is not just a text detached from time and place. It's a text that is pivoted and fastened to a pivotal moment in human history and, of course, in in Jewish history. And when we study Torah, we're not just studying information, but we're trying to reenact that experience. That's, of course, the moment of Harsina. Harsina wasn't just a logistical delivery. Harsina was a delivery of Torah in a context that's much broader than the text itself. It was a context to Harsina. It wasn't just the delivery of a book. It was mass revelation. The first and only time in history that a Kurdish Baruch revealed himself directly to human beings, without, not through dreams, not through intermediaries, not a single person, but three million people strong stood at Harsinai, jointly corroborating each other's experience. It was a moment in which the infinite, incohate word of HaKadosh Baruch Hu was translated to human form. That itself is a novel idea, that something so infinite and ethereal and non-physical, and Hashem doesn't even speak in words. He, he doesn't have intellect the way we have intellect. We have to clothe our ideas in words. We've got to conjugate ideas with words. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is all will. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is all essence, all reality. How can HaKadosh Baruch Hu translate that essence into words that are digestible to the human imagination? So it was an epic moment and every time we open a Sefer, we want to climb our way back to Harsina, to remember the source of our belief, to remember that, that one claim that, that, that no other religion will ever stake. We, we can't prove Judaism empirically more than you can prove any other religion. Religion isn't empirical, it's faith-based. Empirical study can elucidate what faith affirms, but it has to begin with faith. And it's likely that Christian traditions are true, and it's likely that Islamic traditions are true because they've stood the test of time. They've been transferred generation to generation. The question is not the methodology of transition or how it was transferred or transmission, but what what the traditions state. Christianity states that Jesus walked on water and had disciples who thought he was God. I can fully accept the fact that he walked on water. He was a magician. I can fully accept the fact that he healed people. He was a healer. I can fully accept that he had students who thought he was God. I wish my students put that everybody <laughs> Those are traditions which are completely consonant with denying the validity of Christianity as a religion. I completely it's ascribed to the notion that Muhammad had a dream one night in which God commanded him to conquer the world and convert them to a different religion. It's been passed on through thousands of generations. Many people have those dreams. Most of them are in the puzzle house. But it, those traditions don't necessarily... I can't prove Harsin. It's not, it's not empirically provable, but if I accept Harsinai through its transmission, then we lay a claim that no other religion dares to claim, that we spoke to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in an unmediated, non-intermediary fashion. 
3 million people directly heard the voice of HaKadosh Baruch And if we accept that, we can't prove it empirically, but if we make that leap of faith, then every statement issued at Harsinai is reality, is truth. It can't be debunked by signs and omens and symbols and events and historical terms. So studying Torah is a chance to recreate Harsinai. Harsinai had many modalities to it. It was joyous, it was festive, it was historical, it was cataclysmic. There were many different versatile experiences. But if there was one emotion which dominated Harsinai, it was fear. Not the knee-buckling fear of terror and physical harm, but the awe of coming into contact with a being that the human imagination just can't grasp. Harsinai was an attempt to debunk idolatry. There were no visuals and no optics. and It was auditory, but it wasn't visual. The only visuals were smoke and clouds and billowing plumes and wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't visual because Yerushalayim was being established. Not the Yerushalayim of fear, but the Yerushalayim of awe, of incomprehensibility, of inscrutability. And we were unsettled. We were frightened. We were destabilized. It wasn't a comfortable experience for us. And if our attempt to study Torah is to reenact our Sinai, then can Simcha cohere with a Sinai-like experience? So... Practically, there were two very interesting regulations of Talmud Torah based on the attempts to reenact Harsina. For about 1,500 years, it was forbidden to study Torah when you were sitting. The last stand. The Gemara Megillah, source number 10, says, Mimos Moshe ve'ad Rabban Gamliel, Lohayu l'meidin Torah ela me'umad. They stood at attention, because at Harsina, everyone stood no chairs at Harsinai, no box seats. Who was standing? At attention, reverence. And Talmud Torah was intended to recreate Harsinai. You are not allowed to sit. At a certain point towards the close of the second Mesamik, this just became untenable. And it compromised the experience of Talmud Torah. Can you imagine standing every time you'd study Torah? And then there was another Takana, which even predated, or it probably didn't predate it, but men were not allowed to study Torah after engagement in marital experiences. A Balkari was prohibited for Torah study until he dipped in the mikvah. The Gemara tries to tease this out from a Pasuk source number 11 in Brachos, Rodatam, Levanecha, Levnei Vanecha, Yom Asher, Hashem, Torah is an attempt to flavor Chorev in the room. What's going to be Chorev like? Chorev like wasn't walk in the park. Chorivlak wasn't relaxed or casual or cavalier or content. We're unsettled. So in the end, the Gemara fails to derive it from a Pasuk. And it ends up being a Takan of Ezra. Ezra returns from Babel, tries to reinvigorate Talmud Torah. He also is fighting rampant intermarriage. So there's an intermarriage component to this. And he's trying, to, it's, 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 he's trying to kill two birds with one stone, essentially. He's trying to get them to distance themselves from the Gentile wives and also to re-emphasize the solemnity and the gravitas of Talmud Torah. So you can imagine the men in this room, you basically have to dip into the mikvah with greater frequency and not just chassidim. Anytime you want to open a sefer, you have to be as pure as possible, at least from the tomb of Valkyrie. And that also fell, that also was suspended because practically it just didn't enable successful and sustained Torah learning. So if we're trying to create Harsinai, can Simcha enjoy cohere with Harsinai's moments, with Harsinai's emotions. And I mentioned the suspension of Ezra's Takana, Balkari doesn't have to go to the mikvah, and the suspension of 
Gamliel or during Gamliel's period, you could sit when you're learning, but there was one experience that still tried to recapture Harsinai. What experience recaptures Harsinai and is laced with awe, attention, reverence, solemnity? What experience is this? Hakel. See, Hakel in our imagination and in the modern imagination is a hustle bustle of hundreds of thousands of Jews at the Kotel and you can barely move and you get pushed in older. We know that feeling. Well, that was sweaty Israelis pushing you on all sides. Simchas Beis Hashoeva. That's what Hakel was. Hakel was a gathering that tried as closely as possible to mimic Harsinai. After apologies, I quoted the Rambam, source number 12, but I didn't quote the beginning of the Rambam. I'm trying to make these sources as brief as possible. The Rambam describes Hakel. Oh, I'm, I'm reading about seven words which don't appear on the sources. I'll read them slowly if you want to write them down or at least digest them. The Rambam describes Hakel, Lishmoa, to listen to Torah, Bi'ema v'yira, Ema and Yira, fear and awe, Vigilu birada, and the joy of discomfort, Gilu birada, Kiyom shenitna bo just like it was given in Harsinai. Then the Rambam concludes, source number 12, Shilokava The purpose of Hakel is not really cognitive, it's more experiential. Vira Atzmo line two, this is the punchline, key line, money shot in the Rambam. Vira Atzmo line two, source 12, kilo atan itstavabo, as if you're receiving it this moment, and that's why the agent of delivery, who do you think the agent would be? It's the Melech, because the Melech can install as closely as possible at a human level those dosages of fear or discomfort. Melech in, in monarchies has that type of absolute power to decide life and death. The Rambam concludes, In theory, the Melech was selected over someone who may have been a bigger Talmachachim. Because we're not looking for the person that can deliver the best brisker shear. We're looking for the person that can be a stand-in or an understudy for HaKadosh Baruch Hu's role in Harsinai. And the Melech can play that role most, most accurately. So if we're trying to recreate Harsinai, can that, not, not the mirth, and I, those who came in a little bit late, I spoke about the difference between schok, which is lightheadedness, and joy, and humor, and relaxation, which I think are all important in life, and simcha, which is inner contentment, serenity, tranquility, gratification, a sense of alignment. Harsinai is not meant, and if we're returning to that moment, what role should simcha play? The second challenge of simcha during Talmud Torah is not just the place we return to, but the being we try to connect to. Talmud Torah is not just studying text. We want to tunnel our way to HaKadosh Baruch There are many ways we try to interface with Hashem. We dive into Hashem. We live in His land. We build His people and His history. And we try to mimic His moral essence. We fulfill His commands. We try to fashion ourselves into obedient slaves. But the closest we can come is to study His directly revealed will. Because everything else is a human convention. Philosophy is a human convention. The employment of human terms trying to describe a Kaddish Baruch, it's flawed. For some it's helpful, for some it's meaningless. But it's always flawed because the entire lexicon is human-based. And a human-based lexicon is incompatible with the divine. But Torah is his will. By definition, Moshe Feinstein knew more about Hashem than, uh, than Albert Einstein because he wasn't decoding God through his creation. He was listening to God's direct interview. So we're trying to find a Kaddish Baruch. It's a, it's a theological moment. It's a chance to reach out and and interact with Rabbanu Shalom. And perhaps the Pasuk which best captures this is the Pasuk, source number 13, at least the way it's interpreted by Chazal. Bechol ha-makom asher az-zakir ha-shini avoy lecha ve-rachticha. 
The first part of the Pasuk speaks about the unique ceremonies and rituals of the Beis HaMikdash, Mizbach Korbanos. But then Hashem assures us he may not be a Kohen, he may not have a Beis HaMikdash, no matter where you are, just call my name, and I'll be there. Very frontal. Now, how do you call Hashem's name? Well, the phrase Shem Hashem is a metaphor. My name is Moshe. If, let's say, you lobotomize me and change my name into David overnight, it wouldn't change who I am. It'd be a little awkward tomorrow, but... I get used to it. I still be the same person, same values, same traits, same family, same. Wouldn't really change much. But Moshe is the way people refer to me. Instead of saying, you over there in the black suit, uh, you go, Moshe, and I answer. So it's an access point. So where you access me, Moshe, and I respond. Similarly with Torah. Hashem's essence is in Torah. Hashem spans beyond Torah. But it's the way we access him, and that's why it's called Shem Hashem. Anyone know where else Torah is referred to? A second point in the Torah. Once in Parshas Yisro, Where else? Kishem Hashem Ekro, which is the source for Berchta Torah. When you learn Torah, Kishem Hashem Ekro, the only two Berchas, which are the Araisa, Berchta Torah and Berchta Masar. So, in that vein is interpreted as anytime you read Torah, I'm there. And this is how Chazal interpreted in a very famous passage in Perkeabos. Source number 14 and 15. Ten people will learn Torah, engage with the Shechina. Five people will learn Torah, engage with the Shechina. Three people will learn Torah. Source number 15. How do you know that even one person who studies Torah is engaging with the Shechina. Shinemar, Bechol HaMakom, Asher Azkir Eshni, Avoy Lachol Verachticha. That's the second challenge of Simcha. Studying Torah is walking into a different realm. It's not your province. It's a different domain. It's the domain of HaKadosh Baruch And when I enter that realm, should my passport read Simcha, or should it read something more solemn, combination, let me give you a halachic example for the fact that Torah is entering a different domain, a different realm. Can a Rebbe be mochel is kavod? A father can be mochel is kavod. Can a Rebbe be mochel is kavod? At the core of this question is, whose Torah is it? Is the Rebbe just a link, a transmission? In which case, it's not his kavod to him. It's not Kodesh Baruch who's kavod, and therefore it can't be waived. It can't be neglected. It can't be surrendered. This was the source of a very interesting debate amongst two Amarayim in the Gemara Kedushin, Source 17. Now, the axis of this debate was an intriguing Pasuk in the beginning of Tehillim. Because Tehillim mentions the man, the fortunate man who doesn't fall into the company of wicked, doesn't adhere to the naysayers and the, and the, the demagogues. Moshe relates him. He doesn't walk in the path of the sinners. And what's the next Pasuk? Source number, here somewhere, source number 16, second Pasuk. Kiim, what is the, remember, Tehillim starts backwards. Tehillim is a backwards, backwards book. Asher Rather than, Aror Hayish Asher Halach. 
David doesn't want to start dealing with the word Arar. doesn't want to start the word dealing with the, with the curse. So he writes, Asher ha'ish asher lo halach batzas rishayim. Uvederach hatayim lo amad. Uvemoshev leitzim lo yashav. And then he provides his prescription for success. Ki im betoras Hashem chetzo. He desires Hashem's Torah. So the first presentation is that the Torah is owned possessively by Hashem. And then this Pasuk flips. Who is the Torah so referring to? What's the antecedent? The Ish. So whose Torah is it? Is it Hashem's Torah, Torah's Hashem? Or is it Torah so, the Torah of that Ish? Ask yourself, you've all worked in Torah, you've all spent hours, you all feel as if you've personalized it, is it really yours? Now, of course, at an existential level, those two modalities don't clash. They're both. Part of what makes Torah so appealing is that it's a merging of two different realms, and it's a merging of the human spirit and a Kaddish Baruch Hu's will. And for that day in the base matters, you can't have it both ways. Halacha is binary. Experience is versatile. But halacha has to be, is it Torah Hashem, and therefore the Rebbe can't be Mochel? Or is it Torah so? Is it his Torah, and therefore he's deserving of the honor, and he can be Mochel? And the Gemara advances these two positions. The end of Source 17 Hacha, sorry, source 18. Hacha, Torah delay? Is it his Torah, the Rebbe? Hadrama Rava, and then Rava flipped and reversed. In Torah delay. So Rava was deliberating these two words in the Pasuk. But when we study Torah, we're entering a different realm. In fact, Rabbi Soloveitchik famously suggests a very, very provocative idea that the nature, halachically, of a birchah satara, the bracha recited before studying Torah, that the nature of a birchah satara is akin to a birchah hanenin. Just like when I eat an apple, I have to recite a bracha to be matir the apple, because before the bracha isn't mine, l'ashem haaretz loa, it doesn't belong to me, and if I eat that apple without a bracha, I'm a thief. Similarly, if I study Torah without making a bracha, I'm a thief. I've entered a realm without permission, without authorization. And that's why it has to precede the Talmud Torah, and that's why the Gemara says in Brachos Yidal, if you wake up early in the morning before davening, you still have to make a bracha as a matir for certain types of Torah, proved it from the Gemara in Brachos. So can Simcha frame this entry into a different realm? Those are the first two challenges of Simcha when we study Torah. Number one, is it compatible with our Sinai? Number two, is it compatible with the recognition, Simcha, if it's, again, not joy and happiness, but contentment and satisfaction. It's internal, it's human. It's when we've absorbed an experience and we feel comfortable with that experience, our place in our world, our place in our families, our place in our own sense of self. But Torah is an entry into Hashem's world. And is that contentment and gratification synonymous, or at least congruent, with the entry into Hashem's domain, to Hashem's palace? So, so far we've itemized two potential challenges for Simcha and Talmatara. Number one, we're trying to return to Harsinai. That wasn't a moment of contentment or tranquility. Number two, we're entering Hashem's realm. It's a foreign space. It's an ennobling foreign space. But we're ascending to a different location in our space, in our minds, in our hearts. The third challenge is motivation. Torah is very powerful. 
by definition, it's divinely empowered, it's divine jet fuel. And Chazal were aware that it could be used just as it could be abused. The Samtem es Chazal take that Pasuk as a code to Sam Zacha Nasalo Sam Chayim. Lo Zacha Nasalo Sam Mavis. It could be an elixir and it could be toxic. It can lead to arrogance, it can lead to self-aggrandizement, it can lead to perversion, distortion, kavod, money, honor, ego, positioning, social, or in the horrifying words of Chazal, a kardam lach borbo, an axe or a hoe to peddle your own affairs, your own interests, your own agenda. So when we study Torah, it's a question of not just where we are heading historically and who we're encountering theologically, but internally. Let's say for a moment Harsinai were off the table. Was it wasn't important to recreate Harsinai. But it's so powerful, do we approach Torah with the proper motivation? And if Torah is joyful, or at least if Torah is intellectually stimulating and, and conveys that sense of engagement, and is that consistent with Torah Lishma? This is something addressed by the person who is most obsessed or preoccupied with Torah Lishma, Reb Chaim Velazhen. Reb Chaim Velazhen, the founder of the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva, known as the Velazhen Yeshiva, the, called the, the mothership of all modern yeshivas. Every yeshiva today, whether it's a yeshiva down the block in Me'a Sharem or yeshiva down the road in Grishetzial, every modern yeshiva has DNA of the Velazhen Yeshiva. That was the first modern yeshiva probably since the Spanish era. Jews had learned in small little Bate Medrash with the uh, local Rav. And if you outgrew the local Rav, you went to the next city, the bigger city, you went with that Rav. You went with the... There were a couple of yeshivas that sprouted up, but uh, convening of people from across large spaces to learn under one roof and ultimately to provide food for them and dormitories for them and not just to allow them to be off on their own and offer them rabbanim and a room to sit in, that all stems from the Velazhen Yeshiva under the inspiriting of the Vilna Gaon. Chaim Velazhen was a Talmud of the Vilna Gaon. So, in his sefer called Nebuchadnezzar Chaim, which has become the Bible of, uh, of the Yeshiva world, because it asserts very boldly the surpassing value of Torah, and there's nothing more important in this world than Talmud Torah. It doesn't just affect our own experience, not just our own world, but supernal worlds and cosmic realities and and in Velazhen, they took the Gemara and the Dharm very seriously, that if Torah wouldn't be studied for one minute, the world would collapse, which I believe is true, because this world isn't here for material or politics or headlines or nations or wars or sports. It's here for the presence of Hashem, and the presence of Hashem is best conveyed through Torah. But when I go to sleep, I know that people in, I don't know, Los Angeles are waking up to learn, if they want to go to sleep. In Velazhen, they took it dead serious. In Velazhen, they assigned shifts like in the army. So you have to learn from two to three, and you have to learn from three to four, and you have to learn from five to six, and you have to learn from one to the graveyard shift, because it was on them to keep the world afloat, to sustain the world. So in his Sefer Nefesh which is written as a polemic against Hasidus, because Hasidim were toying with the concept of Lishma. To them, Torah was studying for some higher spiritual experience, and for him, Torah was studying just to engage in the content itself. When you're learning a Telsmos, you need every morsel of mental and emotional energy to crack the code. So you're dedicating some of that energy to an experiential moment, to feel Hashem's presence. So you're saying, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, sit down. I, I need to focus on Tosos right now. Stop bothering me. I need to get your Tosos. And to get your Tosos, I can't be thinking about you right now to be thinking about your Tosos. It, it's a compelling question. 
But in his Ruach Chaim, which is the Sefer Rav in Perkyavos, which is source number 22, in his Ruach Chaim, he, he, he wrestles with this question of Tara Lishma. He writes, There are many different side motives. Lavas mamon, monetary profit, kavod, honor. Line number three, for some it's just intellectual. Even philosophers would agree. Compared to Tara, all the other disciplines wane. So here's his resolution. If you are lishma, and by the way, you happen to enjoy it, don't worry. Your primary motive is religious. And what can you, what can you do if consequently you also enjoy it? It's not ideal, but it's inevitable. And what's primary and what's secondary? What's the thrust and what's ancillary? We'll see another 18th century Polish figure greatly, greatly alter this sequencing. But Reb Chaim places his finger squarely upon the issue. Why am I sitting to learn? Because it's enjoyable? Not jovial and light, it's hard, but it creates a sense of satisfaction. Or amenas lasos, to fulfill mitzvahs, to get close to HaKadosh Baruch to understand his will. And the simcha can perhaps blur the differences. And that's the third concern of simcha. It's interesting because Throughout history, there are many who raise concerns of whether we should be happy when we study Torah, but they didn't make it into the Svar. Most of them were excised in the Svar. I'm just summarizing the issues that could emerge. The fourth concern, the first concern is trying to trace ourselves back to Harsinai. The second concern is trying to enter a realm beyond our human realm, the realm of Akadosh Baruch The third concern is motivation. Am I studying to be motivated Religiously, or is it, as we would say, self-serving and self-directed and self-inward in, turning? The fourth concern is not motive, but sustaining the rigor of Torah study. Torah study isn't easy. It takes discipline. It takes commitment. It takes persistence. Generally, generally when we try to discipline ourselves towards taxing and even overwhelming experiences which we deem valuable, it's not because we enjoy them, it's because we render them valuable and important and we commit ourselves to those tasks. And at what point, if a person is searching for simcha and Torah, at what point will that diminish discipline, commitment, stick to if you interview your average masvid and say, does this cause you simcha? You may say, ah, it's hard. I'm stretching my limits. I'm pushing myself sleep deprived and I'm working hard and by demon it's valuable, it's eternal. And I'm willing to sacrifice some inner simcha for something larger than my own identity or my own situation. The Gemara describes, source number 19, where it describes how a person should approach Talmud Torah. Liolam Yisim Adam Asma al Divrei Torah, nice duality. Kishor Liol, source 19, or Kachamor Lamasui. Like an ox with a yoke and a donkey with a weight. So the common denominator is heavy, taxing, difficult, exhausting. There's a difference. 
First of all, the donkey has an acute weight, whereas the shore is not as acute. The donkey is working and schwitzing hard. The shore is using its body mass to pull. You don't feel that same effort. And sometimes there are moments of acute work in Talmatar. You really don't understand something and it bothers you when you work at something and you're not feeling well and you feel like, I've got to find the inner donkey. I've got to be the donkey here. I've got to carry this way. It's hard. I don't understand it. It troubles me. It's important to understand that. I'm not at my best right now. How can I find the resources? Sometimes it's just the day-to-day to finish the daf and I have to finish the Mishnayos that I committed to and I just want to make sure that my dosage in Torah, my, my, my speedometer keeps increasing in Talmud Torah. The second difference is I think a Masoi is physical and an all is also psychological. When you're carrying something on your neck, even when you're at rest, there's a choker. You feel as if you're under some larger commitment and the Jew lives a committed, mandated life. And that sense of commitment and calling is nowhere more pronounced than in Talmud Torah because it's so overwhelming and it can drown you. And it can... So I remember my, little, my children, when they were little, would walk into my svarim room, lying with svarim on either side, and they'd say, Abba, when are you going to finish? I'd say, probably never. <laughs> Not even close. And that could either be enticing and intriguing to pursue the elusive, and to never, to never catch it, to never apprehend it, or it can be very frustrating, taxing mentally, psychologically. I think we've all hit that point in Torah, especially, especially in Torah Shabbat Peth. Tanakh, Baruch Hashem, there are many great shirim in Tanakh this evening, but if you work hard enough, you reach beachhead pretty quickly. There are layers that you can still uncover, but there's a sense of satisfaction. What the text says, what the information is, things are organized. Shas is chaotic. Shas is a swirling vortex of variables and ideas and clashes and symmetries and just to, sometimes just to reach beachhead, just to, you know, base camp takes hours and hours. That's not even climbing Mount Everest. You're getting to base camp, just getting to the base camp, setting up the tent. It could take you 10, 12 hours. And your average difficult subject. That's why Chazal speak of it. Very interesting homily, source number 21. Who would have thought the Talmud Torah, maybe this is a good way to convince you that it's not all just Simcha. Who would have thought that a Pasuk in Eicha refers to Talmud Torah? But yet the Gemara in Sanhedrin superimposes an Eicha Pasuk. What does it say in Eicha? Paragimel? Bama chashakimo shivani kimei olam. You can just see Yermia sitting right down the street in a sackcloth. Right out here, looking at Yushalayim and crying, Hashem, you've placed me in the darkness like the dead of this earth. Then a couple hundred years later, that refers to people who study Gemara. Zetel Mubavli. The newsflash. It's true. It's not dark in a bleak and gloomy sense, but it's a tunnel. And it's taxing. And if the impetus for Talmud Torah is simcha and contentment, at what point will a person walk away when it doesn't cause at least that immediate contentment, that immediate gratification? I would think, and I'm thrilled with the popularity of Tanakh and the rising resurgent popularity, but I would imagine that some of the popularity is because it's less difficult. Part of it is we're back in the country, part of it is themes that we haven't thought about and inspected for. But Yeshiva Haritzion runs a Tanakh Yimei Yun during the summer for a week and about 4,500 people walk into the building. I sometimes wonder if we ran a Yimei Yun Batanach on the Gemara Bava Basra, how many people would show up. <laughs> One thing I know for sure, not 4,500 people. It's hard, it's taxing. Those are the four challenges towards studying Talmud Torah purely 
for a position of or modality of simcha. Now I have to issue a, not a disclaimer, but a condition, a qualification. I think the first two are more severe. The last two can ease, more easily be calibrated. You could more easily merge simcha with lishma, either in the manner of the Chaim Velazhin, your primary focus is serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the secondary ramifications are joy, or to be able to sense simcha in serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that contentment, that gratitude. I'm not sure that they're irreconcilable. Certainly that last part, if, if simcha, we grow through life and we grow and we learn the difference between happiness and meaning, and if we choose happiness, we'll probably not ever achieve it, we achieve meaning, we'll probably have both. At a certain point, meaning, contentment, and the deeper the struggle, the more the meaning, the more the contentment, the more the formative. So it's easier to reconcile simcha with those last two concerns, the concern of motivation and the concern of how long you'll sustain Talmudar. It's a little more tricky to reconcile, I think it's still feasible, simcha and Talmudara with that return to Harsinai and the moments of Harsinai. And certainly entering a realm of a Baruch Hu which isn't our realm. It's still doable because I think human beings are multifaceted. We're not one-dimensional. We're not binary. There are moments in the Talmud Torah we'll feel Harsinai. There are moments of Talmud Torah we'll feel content and gratified. And there are moments we'll feel we're in HaKadosh Baruch Hu's realm and we're unsettled by him. There are moments we'll feel that we've conquered Torah and personalized Torah. But I think those two first concerns are more primary, whereas those last two concerns are concerns that should be acknowledged but are easier to synchronize with our experience of Talmudar. But what are the advantages of Simcha Talmudar? Right? There's, no, there's no black and white answer here, but what are the advantages? How does Simcha facilitate Talmudar? So I want to talk about three very brief opportunities for Simcha. Probably the most audacious statement of the value of Simcha and Talmudar was issued by Rabbi Avram Bornstein, known as the Avne Nezer, the Igleital, Sachachav, Son-in-law of the Kotsk, talking about Rav Chaim Belagin, who had entry to the sequestered Vilna Gon. He was one of the only people, Rav Avram Bornstein, who had access to the sequestered Kotsker Rebbe. Kotsker Rebbe withdrew from his yeshiva, locked himself in a room to achieve purity. Somehow his son-in-law was the one who he gained access to. He started the Hasidus of Sachachav. The son of the Avinezer was a Shem Mishmuel. So just uh, those of you who follow the Hasidic lineage. So in a very famous statement in the Igle Tal, this is source number 23, There's some idiots. If you're happy when you're learning, He addresses the first concern. He says, line number four of the MS, Zetas Meforsan. This is a known error. The Adarabah, he flips the script. Adarabah, not just am I going to defend that Simcha is passable, Adarabah. Here's this key line. Zehi Ikar Mitzvahs Limotara. Ikar Mitzvahs Limud Talmatara is the Simcha that Torah provides. The question he doesn't address is why. And I want to suggest, I want to quote three different approaches. One from a 14th century French rabbi, and two from a 20th century Lithuanian rabbi. Rabbeinu Avram Minahar, Rabbeinu Avram of Montepleu. I, I killed that, but some place with, with more culture than myself. Okay, 14th century Rabbeinu Avram articulates it as follows, source number 24. 
Okay. Source number 24, line, thank you, Rabbi Bamel. Source number 24, line 3. If there is a seed for you, you can get with Sire or Ms. Or Most of are from the or adjunct. But this is an eternal mitzvah. It's not Hashem's word. And to believe in it. And how do you reach deeper levels of belief? We have to let land. We all believe in a Hushbah. We all believe in Torah. But there are different levels of belief. And it can't be quantified. I believe 70%, the 30% of the reason I don't believe is how essential is it? How much has become your will? How internal is it? Does it become something that lands or settles within your identity to the deepest core of who you are? Does it cause that sense of last night I was in the circle with uh, a lot of people in the circle, so whenever we large guests, a lot of those guests have like a round robin question for everyone to answer. So I'm not saying everyone bar on the table tells what makes you happy or not. What gives you content? What I have to say, a little piece. It's not because it depends on if your religion and life merge. It's all straight and smooth. I don't feel like I'm two people. I'm, I'm always religious and I'm always living and sometimes I'm here and sometimes I'm there, but I feel like it's one line rather than a curve or waxing and waning. So since Taurus is, is intellectual and existential, if it doesn't cause contentment, then you're still distant. It's not really part of you. You don't feel completely comfortable. It's not, it's not your skin. There's some other part of you have to give it up. And then there's a superposition of some rule of God or rule of God, and you're walking around with two parts, and you're not completely integrated, and when it lands, and it settles, and Bato and Sankar and Sankar, you say, this is how I view life. This is, it makes sense, and this is something that causes me contentment, and, and serenity, and, and calmness, and inner peace, and all that doing something of meaning. And read it again. Mitzvah Salimah Shukiniyat Sir Halev. That's your I've been studying that. Math is a world. Math is a religious. There's no religious component to math. Let me take a few more minutes because of the Madaras. They brought people who did the Tsar, her Amazon, this Anig, the Lehanos, the Mandal, the Samach, the Baba, the Sikha. Since we're short of time, I'll just briefly describe two issues which your foot are talking about in these topics. The first issue, which Rabbi Rabbi Nahar, remember, the Igwe Tal asserted the importance of happiness. It's simply to explain why. The 14th century French Rabbi Rabbi Nahar talked about being an internal subscription, subscribing to an idea, you're trying to internalize that idea, and you internalize it when it causes one of the lines as part of your essence. Pachet Yitzhak speaks about how we. Um, how do we acquire information? It's more epistemological, it's not just religious. How do we study? What role does curiosity play in study? What role does wonder play in study? What role does marvel play in study? When we're looking for information, we're trying to explore our world, or we express our curiosity, and we feel passionate about something, we tend to engage more deeply, we tend to follow more thoroughly, we research more assiduously, and we're interested. There's a part of acquisition of knowledge, not just time. Epistemology, how required, assemble knowledge. Part of that is wonder. Part of it is marvel. We're living in a world which we replace marvel with shallow screens and people 
it. Not marvel so much. Science has eliminated marvel. We've got not much wonder. We're not intrigued. And a little bit of shallowness. And it's harder for us to access. So our partner writes, and I'll end this with you. Our partner writes, source number 25 says, you can't understand something. You have to connect to that. And how do you connect to that? Line number four. The power of joy, wonder. What do you call it? Joy, wonder, engagement, interest, intrigue. I feel that in the firm world today, there's a shrinking of human interest and curiosity. We're not as curious as we should be. We're very content just looking at how at the four cubits we inhabit and reinforcing them, which is important, but we're not really opening our blinders to some important issues that can enrich and leaven who we are as people. We're leaven bread and lift and great thrust and heft rather than one dimensional shallow flat line. And the second issue of what I propose to speak to that, I'm going to is not about how you acquire information, but how you remember information. Memory is not just an intellectual skill, memory is what we care about. Sometimes I'll ask the boy, how many puzzles you learned in high school three months ago, and he can't even begin to identify. Well, how many scored the jet ski in three months ago? Heck yeah, we got that story down. How many stats do you remember? So you care about it. You don't forget your birthday. So obviously, memory is not just an intellectual acumen, it's also a decision. And memory is not just tricks to the number, but how deeply we've internalized information at the get go. Things that are very formative and transformative and deeply touch us. We don't forget that. And if we're excited about what we're learning, because generally when we're emotional about experiences, then our, our minds flow more directly to our hearts. When there's excitement, either happiness or sadness, we break out of that rigid reality that we, the, the depthless reality we spend our lives walking through. And all of a sudden, there's a, a high pitch of excitement or a low moment, but those are the times we remember most. Because the emotional stamp creates memory retention. It's an emotional step. I remember that time was really sad. I remember that time was really enthralled. And if those moments are associated with Talmud Torah, the Torah will seep in more deeply and be more easily retained. So this is the last source, source number 26. Shekol hamakas haklita shalvar Torah. Take it, Rishon, Rishon, and Shaknis is If Torah is absorbed, ain't no nonsense, el vitoch, vidoy hatani. If you're happy and engaged, then you'll be able to retain it because it infiltrates or percolates towards people around yourself. So obviously there's no answer to this. And obviously one should enjoy sitting by starting and not studying or we're celebrating the role of Torah, the presence of a Torah, the honor of Torah, the beauty of Torah. But not Monday, but Tuesday. Tuesday you're sitting in front of the Gemara. Tuesday you're sitting in front of the Shulchan Aruch. What role should sin apply? Not an easy question. There are four challenges. But I think, obviously, many modern makers in, in the modern world were able to deconstruct the human psyche and be more aware of the different parts of human psychology. And people like David Mattel and people like Rehoboth were aware of it, not joy, not, not, not lightness in terms of not contentment and engagement and marvel and, and serenity in terms of itself.